1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4.
0: Okay, in the previous session, uh, we finished about chapter 3, verse 12. I'd like to ask you a question, and I'm indebted to James Dobson for this. When he was at the Council for National Policy, he made a speech that was Very impressive. But he opened it with a very interesting question. What is the first thing that God created? Anyone? What's the first thing that God created?
1: Wisdom.
0: Go, you cheated. (laughs) You looked ahead. See, the answer is not in Genesis 1. Speak of light, earth, heaven. No, no. It's in Proverbs chapter 8. Now, in Proverbs chapter 8, the style of the passage is in... um, Poetic terms or anthropomorphic terms. uh, Proverbs 8 talks about wisdom. It's as if wisdom is talking to you in the first person singular. It's so impressive, as you'll see. Many people simply ascribe this, and not improperly, to Jesus Christ as being the personification of wisdom. You can look at it that way if you like. There's no problem with that. But let's look at Proverbs 8 doth not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice she standeth in the top of high places by the way and the places of the path she crieth at the gates at the, at the entry of the city and at the entrance of the doors unto you O men, I call and my voice is to the sons of man O ye simple understand wisdom O ye fools be of understanding heart herefore I will speak of excellent things and the opening of my lips shall be the right things And he goes, and, and, and the writer goes on now let's pick it up about um, verse 23. You can read the. make a note to yourself to read the rest of chapter 8 at your leisure. But I want to pick up verse 23. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the f- mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, and he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea its decree that the water should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth... Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now, you can see this passage very validly, vividly, clearly as the Son with the Father at the creation. I wouldn't quarrel with that. Or you can stand back and say this as a style of writing, which is, but it's clearly speaking of wisdom. So what precedes the physical creation as you and I think of it? Wisdom. As we jump into James, chapter 3, verse 13, where he is going to talk about wisdom. We use that word so casually, wisdom. Verse 13 asks the question, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or more perce- or good behavior. The word conversation is the old English for what you and I, the term has come to mean something a little different in modern usage. Behavior uh, is good behavior. His works with meekness of wisdom. It's in Proverbs 4 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. Now, most of us confuse man's knowledge with man's wisdom. There's enormous knowledge available throughout mankind. And many Christians, by overreacting to some of these injunctions we'll get into, overreact to that. No, there's much knowledge, and knowledge is to be embraced and and acquired. It's useful. However, uh, the real problem is man's wisdom. The Bible is full of examples of the folly of man's wisdom. Not the folly of man's knowledge. Knowledge isn't to be despaired. Knowledge is basic. But wisdom, uh, the application of the knowledge. Let's see, let's just, we could spend uh, substantial time just chronicling the, the follies of man's wisdom in the scripture. Uh, perhaps one of the earliest ones we see uh, in, a, in a collective, in large sense, is the Tower of Babel. They had this big uh, project, which ended up in failure and confusion. Another example of man's folly was Abraham. When uh, there was a famine in the land, he fled to Egypt uh, in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, another example of the folly of man's wisdom is uh, Saul. When David was going to take on Goliath, he wanted David to put on his armor. It seemed logical at the time. Of course, the kid couldn't handle it, and that wasn't God's plan, so you know the story. In Acts 27, despite Paul's warning, the Roman experts insisted upon the setting out to sea. And despite their... Uh, folly of their uh, wisdom, uh, they were saved, but they lost everything else because they didn't listen to Paul who warned them. Anyway, man's man's wisdom, the Bible chronicles man's wisdom is, uh, is folly. There are three enemies you and I face. What are the three enemies we face? Anyone? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Sure, that's in Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses. You and I face three adversaries. There are three forces or elements or things that are against you. One of them, of course, is the world, and the wisdom of the world is a trap. Now, you don't want to confuse the world's knowledge and the world's wisdom. Some people figure that you know, they overreact to some of this in impractical in, in ways. Over a century ago, Henry David Thoreau warned that we had improved means to unimproved ends. That's man's dilemma. We've learned how to make bigger and bigger bombs. We haven't learned to use them better. And so forth. That's sort of the flavor of it. The world by wisdom knew not God. That's the ultimate folly. The world has made, had many follies, but the ultimate folly is not to recognize God. And the wisdom of the world rejects the gospel of God. And that's the ultimate foolishness. In fact, God's wisdom is foolishness to man. First Corinthians 2.14 is a good example of that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. It's a, such a basic passage that I, I know we referred to it before, but let's uh, just refresh our, our perspective as the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul. First chapter of Romans, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, both speak of worldly wisdom in a number of ways. But here in verse 18 of chapter 1, first Corinthians, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And boy, isn't it? Isn't that an absurd idea? You know, our our worldly friends must think we're nuts. That the entire universe, everything in it, is going to be measured by an incident that occurred in Judea 2,000 years ago. The preaching of the cross, that by your attitude, your, your, your attitude towards that cross will determine your eternal destiny. By worldly standard, that's foolish. And that's exactly what God says. The, the, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto, unto us who are saved is the power of God. I want you to notice something about that verse. There are only two categories. Every one of us in this room are in one of those two categories. We're either among those that perish or among those that are saved. What discerns the difference between the two? Their attitude towards the cross. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Then he goes on, for after that, by the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, but unto us, unto the Gentiles foolishness, but unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is the beginning of wisdom? Anyone know? Good for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9.10. It's also Psalm 110, 111, verse 10. It's Job twenty eight twenty. It's actually half a dozen different places in Scripture in various ways. Romans 3.18 says, speaking yeah. of the perishing, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God. You know, we, we come to Bible studies. We learn about the Scripture. We do a lot of things. We learn lots of verses and we collect information. But one of the things we need to soberly focus on is: is there the fear of God in our lives? One of the most disturbing things in my own personal life: I spent thirty years as a corporate executive, doing deals on an international basis, serving on many boards of directors, and traveling traveling with many many segments of the corporate world, and had some wins and some losses, met some good guys, some some bad guys, all kinds. The biggest adjustment that I had to make in the last seven years, I've taught the Bible for uh, virtually 30 years as a layman, whatever, but in the last seven years, I've been doing this full time. And uh, one of the biggest adjustments is to somehow deal with the shoddy ethics that you find among Christians. I've dealt with all kinds, mostly secular executives. Many of the executives I dealt with during the 30 years, I don't know their theological position, whether they're saved or not. But you quickly determined which ones were accountable, which ones were reliable, which ones you could trust. And there's an ethic. I didn't say morality. They could have been cheating on their wives, for all I know. But an ethic that you could bank on. Their word is their bomb. That was the, that was the ethic of Wall Street. And uh, the winners were, were those that protected that reputation. And... Uh, I won't chronicle the pathetic stories that have occurred in the last seven years dealing with, quote, Christians, close quote. It's it's been pointed out to me by one of our staff. We were just talking about this the other day. pointed out a very interesting insight. Is that somehow in our Christian community, people are isolated from accountability of their actions. There's forgiveness. There's a style of dealing with things that does not bring about accountability. Uh, it's interesting that that's almost unique to our Christian culture. It's not characteristic of the Jewish culture. Not that there are, there are bad guys among the Jews too, but the point is they do at least have an ethic of honesty. You're talking about integrity and character. You don't find pulpits typically talking about integrity or character. They're talking about theological issues. And I'm not saying one's more important than the other. That's not my point. And what I'm leading up to is what's missing in the equation is a fear of God. We may know all about God. We may be pray to Him a lot, but the fear of God, the reverence for Him, the recognize that He is a participant, looking over your shoulder at every transaction, when you shake hands with someone and say you're going to do something, God's listening. And in certain segments of our society, the parties, you know, it is expected that you honor that commitment, even if it turns out later to be unprofitable. That's part of the game. It's also been pointed out to me that your fear of God does not come from your Bible studies. We're all in here together taking notes and sharing some things, and that's great. Your fear of God is a measure of your devotional life. If you run into somebody that seems to evidence a lack of reverence for God in His attitude, His day-to-day walk, it tells you volumes about His devotional life. And in in our own case, each of us. Your, your fear of God is a derivative of the sincerity and depth and commitment of your devotional life with Him. You spend time with Him. Well, now, where do we get our wisdom? We talk about wisdom here. Fear of God is... Well, where do we get this? Well, first of all, our wisdom is of Christ, the Scripture tells us. So our first step in getting godly wisdom is to be in Christ, to receive Him. Paul speaks of being in Christ 161 times. Check me out and see if I missed any. Second place we get wisdom is from the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6. Let's uh, let's take a look at what our Jewish friends would be quick to point out to us. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This passage is very well known. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord. By the way, love is not an emotion, it's a commitment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And she'll talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest in the, by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou rise up. You know, if you were doing that, we wouldn't have these kids carrying guns to sh- school, shooting their classmates and thinking that's okay. Something's missing. What's missing? These teachings in the home. Now some people uh, smile at the Jewish phylacteries where they bind, they literally take scriptures and put them in little boxes and wrap them on their hands and on their forehead and they go through these, these procedures. And you can smile at that as being sort of a ritualistic approach to it. But they're closer to it than we are, generally. They take it seriously. Okay, in verse uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, is about getting wisdom from the Word of God. And you can read the whole psalm. Uh, this a, it's, a, it's a long one. But uh, read the v- verse about 97 through about 100 there, and it hits it hard. You get wisdom from the Word of God. And then there's a third, this is a review question. There's a third place that you get wisdom. You get it from, by being in Christ, by being saved, you get it from the Word of God. Where's the third place? James 1 5. Do you remember? Chapter 1? By prayer, by believing prayer. And I think there's a tremendous link between your prayer life, your devotional life, and the operative attitude in terms of reverence for God. Many people that we've been dealing with in the Christian community—it's pretty obvious from the kinds of representations and the way they don't uh, honor their commitments—that their prayer life—it tells me volumes about their prayer life. It's not for me to judge their intent; I can't. That's the only God knows the intent of their heart. But you certainly can tell—you can certainly inspect the fruit. Anyway, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Now, he's speaking here of evidences of this man's wisdom, false wisdom. And what does it lead to? What are the evidences of false wisdom? Well, you're going to have envy. See, ambition and boasting robs God of his glory. Is your zeal... Uh, for the Lord, uh, is your zeal for the Lord or is it carnal? In the Christian work, you find people who are very zeal. Are they doing it for the Lord or is there something else in there? Well, how do you tell? Well, do we rejoice when others succeed or are we filled with envy and criticism? Do we spend our time criticizing other Christians who aren't doing it quite the way we would like, that aren't emphasizing in their theology the things that we think are the most important? Do we spend our time you know, uh, 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 slandering and libeling uh, our our fellow workers? Or do we pray for them? When others fail, are we burdened or are we glad? Big issue. Envy. One of the symptoms of false wisdom. Strife, James tells us. That's a form of self-seeking. That's a form of rivalry. That's a close cousin of what we've just been talking about. You can read uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 and following. And Christ taught us about that. And, of course, boasting itself is a evidence of pride, the original sin, the really original sin by Satan. Paul was forced to boast of his ministry, but he always did it in terms that glorified the Lord. And this is, this is one of the, the, the tight ropes we walk all the time because to establish credibility or to open up certain doors and channels, we tend to puff some of the things that we've done. And yet it's very dangerous ground, often misunderstood. You can do that to a certain extent to, to establish credibility in a certain context, but clearly if it's not done carefully, it can be misinterpreted, and, and the idea is needs to always glorify God. Difficult line to walk. We need a lot of prayer in that area. And, of course, deceit. Lie not against the truth. You are know what the biggest lie, biggest deceit that we're vulnerable to? All kinds of people are trying to deceive us. You know, the biggest deceit, most dangerous deceit is our own. Believing our own press releases. Easy to do. Easy to do. I've got a staff that's given me their solemn vow that if I ever start taking myself seriously at all, they will plant their shoe in the appropriate place. Okay. Of course, the, contra- the contrast to all of this is meekness. What is meekness? Power under control. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Meekness is the right use of power. And seeks only the glory of God, and it doesn't cater to the praises of men. Verse 15, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. We've been talking about man's wisdom in these things, which is earthly, sensual, and devilish. This is the source of false wisdom, and I'm fascinated with this term, which translated in your English, sensual. It's psuchigos in the Greek, which means natural or sensual. It's the word from which we get tsuki or life, or soul. It's the word from which we get psychology. Psychology. There's a wonderful example of false wisdom. Now, there's much that the field of psychology can offer in terms of knowledge. But some of the um, inferences... Can be very, are very very anti biblical, very dangerous ground. Very dangerous ground. You, you need to you, if you study Genesis very carefully, you'll discover that the problem with Adam and Eve is they came from a dis- dysfunctional family and didn't have a loving father. And of course, I'm being facetious. That was Satan's problem, right? He wasn't understood. He, had, he came from a you know anyway. Um, and isn't isn't it tragic that when Paul writes to Timothy, he didn't have the benefit? of the insights of modern psychology. No, no, I, I think it's a mistake. Don't throw the whole field into the trash can, as many Christians do. They go overreact to some of this. But just recognize that much of worldly wisdom that masquerades as scientific knowledge is, is just that. It's worldly wisdom, and it's anti... It's not only non-biblical, it's anti-biblical. And the one thing that psychologists cannot deal with is the root problem in the human personality. The root problem in the human personality is guilt. And the psychologists have no remedy for guilt. They can only go through denial. And uh, the only one that has a remedy for guilt gave his life for you and I on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. Only the Bible has an answer for the root problem of the human predicament. Psychology does not. The whole worldly wisdom issue has its origin apart from and is opposed to our new nature that's been given to us by God. Worldly wisdom is in concert with our old nature, but with our new nature, it's opposed. It's, uh, the scripture will talk here about it's wisdom from beneath. It's devilish. It's demonic. Satan's wisdom, one example of it, look at Genesis 3. It's a, it's a wisdom of deceit. You know the story. It's also summarized for you in Romans 1, but we'll move on. Verse 16, And where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Worldly wisdom always produces trouble. Wrong thinking produces wrong living. And you want some examples of that, pick up any paper. Tune in any news broadcast. Look at the lives that make up the bulk of our society. Broken homes. Confusion about the role of man and woman. Even in sight. You think that something as basic as that can be abused... But not that confused. Yet look at our society and its and the foolishness that pervades it. The result of worldly wisdom is pretty obvious. Pretty obvious. Verse seventeen. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy, and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now this is the contrast. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. James 1.17, you remember we looked at that, uh, every good gift is from above. Remember that? Chapter 1. Every good, every good thing that happens in your life comes from where? From, comes from God. Anytime you're down, start counting the good things that are happening and give God the glory. It's amazing how the list grows. Our citizenship, of course, is in heaven, not here. Our, our home is in heaven, not here. Our affection is focused above. There's verses for all these. It'll be in the notes. What are the evidences of pure wisdom, a uh, true wisdom? Purity is for one. It's Purity means it's chaste, free from defilement. There is an affection for the world that can make one an adulterer in the spiritual sense. There's a, a number of verses. I've got them penciled in here. Uh, yeah, Psalm 115, 8 in Psalm 135, 18, tells us that we become like the gods we worship. We become like the gods we worship. Is the world unforgiving? Is the world harsh and cruel? If you're too close to the world, you will become harsh, cruel, unforgiving. That's another reason to worship Christ because what you worship is what you'll become like. Another of these things that uh, James lists here is peace. See, man's wisdom leads to competition, leads to rivalry, ultimately to war. And that's what James is going to talk about in the next chapter. God's peace is based on holiness, not compromise. And Isaiah talks about that. really more gentleness is another list on our list here. Sweet reasonableness is another way of Describing gentleness. Moderation without compromise. Gentleness without weakness. Carl Sandburg described Abraham Lincoln as a man of velvet steel. I like that. Another uh, evidence of true wisdom is compliance. Being agreeable, easy to work with, yielding to (laughs) persuasion. Not a pushover, but yielding to uh, persuasion swift, remember what James said in chapter 1 some of this is review for us here swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath one of the things that I have not taken a lot of time to build here as we go through the book is the integrity of the book these are not scattered admonitions do this, don't do this many people treat the book that way it looks like it at first when you really study the book uh, you'll discover more and more it all ties together all these things are echoes of the foundation that, that James laid in the earlier part of the book Another list here is mercy, controlled by, be full of mercy, be controlled by mercy. Another list is good fruits. The Spirit produces fruits to the glory of God. John 15, you remember the passage in John. We are instructed to be fruit inspectors, not gift inspectors.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.